Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you this morning. One of the most iconic brand images that exists today uh, doesn't require any words. It's simply a glorified check mark, a swoosh. Of course, I'm speaking about the sportswear company Nike. But the ad campaign that really took Nike over the top began in 1988, and it featured everyday individuals and athletes with the famous tagline, just do it. Let's take a quick look at that very first commercial. I run 17 miles every morning. People ask me how I keep my teeth from chattering in the wintertime. I leave them in my locker. In the 10 years following the start of that ad campaign, Nike increased its share of the sports shoe business two and a half times, going from $877 million in sales in 1988 to $9.2 billion in 1998, landing them just shy of 50% of the total sneaker market. The central idea behind the ad was you didn't have to be a great athlete to benefit from Nike products. Anyone could use them, and it was the Nike product that enabled you to achieve greatness if you would just do it. In the scripture text we read today, John provides us with two examples of when I think that slogan applied to a narrative that had Jesus as its center of attention. And my guess is that we're all pretty familiar with those two stories that we just read. But today I'd like us to go just a little bit deeper, maybe, into the stories and see from them, um, see them from a little bit slightly different perspective, one that draws us closer to our Jesus. Now I confess I have, over the past few months, really kind of immersed myself in Jesus stuff. Um, at the beginning of March, I started teaching a Sunday school class entitled John, the Gospel of Light and Life by Pastor Adam Hamilton. And then my wife and I, Misty, began watching The Chosen, um, which is a, a, an account of, it's a series, it's about the life of Jesus and brings it into everyday perspective for people. We found it on our Prime Video account. And then right behind those things, we had Lent, and then Easter came along, so it really played heavily on my mind. And now you get to hear some of those ideas that I have. So to start off, I think it's important that we understand the basis for John's writing of his gospel. See, John's gospel is just a little bit different from the other three synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. While they all give an account of Jesus' life and what it means for you and me to be his followers, John's more focused on who Jesus is. John's account stresses the divinity of Jesus and is constantly providing us with clues to see that while Jesus was fully, fully human, he was also God. Think about the opening words to John's gospel. It reads, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. 
And then if we compare that with the very first verse of the Bible, Genesis 1-1, we read, In the beginning God created heaven and earth. Throughout his whole gospel, John puts those nifty little Easter eggs, I like to call them, that points to Jesus' divinity alongside of his humanity. John wants us to see right away who Jesus is. And he reiterates his purpose and why he wrote his gospel back in the 20th chapter, verses 30 and 31, when he said that Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But they are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. See, John's different than the other Gospels in how he reported Jesus' life. In his account, he only tells us about seven signs, or what we call miracles. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, each one of those has three times that amount. The first miracle that John tells us about is the one we started with this morning, the changing of water into wine at the wedding in Canaan. Interestingly, John is the only Gospel writer to record this event and tell us that this is the first miracle that Jesus performed. Now back in that day, wedding feasts weren't an afternoon or evening event following a ceremony with a meal. The wedding banquet lasted up to seven days, and it was a big social deal. If one would run out of wine, it would be a huge social blunder, bring a ridicule upon the family. We don't know what went wrong at that wedding feast. Why they ran out of wine? Was it due to poor planning on the part of the caterer? Did too many people show up? Or maybe they couldn't afford all the food and wine necessary for that wedding feast. Whatever the reason, they sure needed a miracle that day. John told us that Mary brought this to Jesus' attention, and I like the way that Jesus replied to his mother saying, Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not come yet. In other words, he said, Mom, how's this my problem? I'm not ready to show everyone who I am. In the show, The Chosen, Jesus and Mary are standing in a hallway when this conversation takes place. And as Jesus is giving his answer to Mary, the director pans to Mary's face, and she gives him that look that only a mother can give. And it's the same look that most of us experience at some point in our life when we've offered some lame excuse to our mothers about why we can't do something. You know the one, the one that looks deep inside of you and says, really? After all I've done, really? Well, just as our moms don't hear our responses, it sure appears from the scripture that Mary didn't hear Jesus' either. The text tells us that she simply looked to the servants and said, do whatever he tells you to do. Some other translations say it, whatever he tells you, do it. Now, If we think about this, in my mind anyway, Mary's pretty bold here. She's completely ignoring what Jesus just said to her and effectively tells him the same thing she tells the servants. Just do it. And he did. And so did the servants. By following through with this miracle, Jesus showed that he had the power over natural law. That wasn't packets of great Kool-Aid that he opened up and jumped into those water jugs. And he, and he didn't, it, it wasn't a long, complicated period of time that 
the water changed into wine. It was instantly. It happened. Presto. Only the one who holds sway over all of creation has that power to make that happen. And when Jesus did that, he showed his disciples at the very beginning who he really was, that he truly was the Son of God. Now, equally important to Jesus' just doing it is that the servants also listened to what Mary instructed them to do. With whatever he says, do it. Think about it for a minute. Jesus wasn't their owner. He wasn't their master. He didn't own the house. So who was he to tell them what to do? But by following his instructions, those servants played a role in Jesus' first miracle that effectively announced to the world that he was here and things were about to change. Which brings us to the next miracle, the healing of the blind beggar. John opened his report of this miracle with the disciples questioning Jesus who had sinned, the blind man or the parents. See, back then, the rabbis had developed a line of thought that was popular, which said that the infirmities of people experienced was the result of sin that was committed by either the individual or the parents of the infirmed person. Their line of reasoning was so crazy that it went to say that since there's no death without sin, so then there's no suffering without iniquity, sin, that it even carried to extreme thinking that a child committed sin in the womb. In the verses we read, we see that Jesus quickly dispelled that thought process to the disciples and that he spit on the ground, formed a muddy paste, and with, this, with that he rubbed it on the blind man's eyes and instructs the man to go wash his eyes in the pool of Siloam. John told us that the man did that and came away seeing. But there's more to the story. It just so happens that it was the Sabbath that Jesus performed this miracle. And we know that that always angered the Pharisees when he stepped out of line and did something good on the Sabbath. So the Pharisees brought the man before them and had him tell a story. They didn't like his answers, so they called for his parents forward and had them tell the story. They didn't like those answers either, so they brought the man back one last time. And essentially they bullied him, trying to get him to give an answer that they liked. And I think primarily that's the part of this account that gets most of the focus. But for me, that part, that whole Pharisee part, it hinges on the fact that Jesus told the blind man to go to the pool and wash, and he just did it. Without following through on Jesus' instructions, none of the rest of the story would have occurred. The man didn't question who Jesus was. He didn't complain that going to the pool would be a hardship or a burden. He just did it. And then he could see. Can you even begin to imagine how he must have felt? How his life was changed because he just did it. Because he listened to what Jesus told him to do. In both of the stories from John, I believe that Faith is the the core of everything that transpired. Mary had faith that Jesus was different and able to take what everyone else would say is impossible 
and make it possible. She believed that he could make it happen. Now, to be fair, if anyone should have believed that turning water into wine was possible, you would think that Mary would be that person. I mean, after all, she's the one who had the visit from the angel telling her what was going to happen in the first place and the role that she would play in Jesus' life, right? But I think we also see that element of faith displayed by the blind man as well. Remember, the blind man had not sought out Jesus to be healed. Jesus came to him. And Jesus didn't immediately give him sight, as we see in so many of his other miracles, where the cure was instantaneous. Rather, he told the man to go wash at the pool of Siloam, and he didn't even say, then you'll be able to see, although I think it was probably implied. But the man still needed to act on his faith. And as a blind man, he had to navigate his way through the streets, to the pool, down the steps to get to it. And I don't know, but I think like most folks, wouldn't he be thinking to himself a dozen different reasons why maybe this was a fool's errand? You know, like, what am I doing? And what if I get lost? And just how many steps and how dangerous are they to go down to that pool? Who is this guy that rubbed money spit in my eyes anyway? Friends, Mary's faith led her to ask Jesus to do the impossible. And the blind beggar's faith was rewarded with sight. Which brings us to the tough part of the message. What is Jesus asking us to do? You and me. And how do we respond You and I gather each week because we claim we have faith in the Lord Jesus. And each year we celebrate his victory over death, which in turn promises that we have that same victory if we place our faith in his sacrifice for us. The Apostle Paul makes that clear in the book of Romans. In the third chapter, verses 25 and 26, he wrote, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. And he took it one step further. Paul took it one step further in the fifth chapter of Romans when he wrote, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through him whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. So the first thing that's required for each of us is to have a believing faith in Jesus. But it doesn't stop there. And James, in his letter, makes that pointedly clear. In the second chapter, James wrote, starting with verse 14, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If any one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical need, what good is that? In the same way, faith by itself if not accompanied by action, is dead. I think James is making it pretty clear that true faith 
in Jesus is a living faith. It's a faith that spurns us into action. Our works themselves are never enough to earn us salvation. We do enough things wrong every day, at least I know I do, that could never justify ourselves before God by our works alone. We must have faith that Jesus took that punishment that you and I rightly deserve, and he let it fall upon himself. But likewise, true faith doesn't allow us to sit back, resting on our laurels, saying, yay, I have faith in Jesus, but not do anything about it. Our faith in Jesus and our love for him should motivate us to act. Jesus is calling you and me to be part of his kingdom and to share in the building of it. Jesus has something for each one of us to do, whether you're 4, 40, or 94. He still has something for each of us to do. Maybe it's serving for a Brethren Disaster Ministry trip. Maybe it's to teach Sunday school, serve on the various team ministries here at the church. Perhaps you're called to serve as a deacon, to visit a shut-in. Maybe you're being called to send a note or a card, a telephone call to somebody who's going through a difficult period of time and bring them a word of encouragement. It might be to develop a community garden or some other project that reaches out into your neighborhood. I saw in the bulletin that your Sunday school class right now over the summer is all about how to reach out into the community and become involved with what they need from Jesus. And yes, all those things require effort on our part. And just like the blind man, we can think of a multitude of reasons not to do it. Let's take a look at another short video. I'm too weak, too slow, too big, I ate too much for breakfast, got a headache, it's raining, my dog is sick, I can't right now, I'm not inspired, it makes me smell bad, I'm allergic to stuff, I'm fat, I'm thin, it's too hot, I'm not right, I've got shin splints, headache, I'm distracted, I'm exerting myself too much, I'd love to really, but I can't, I just can't, my favorite show is on, I got a case of the Mondays, the Tuesdays, the Wednesdays, I don't want to do this, I'm gonna do something else, after New Year's, next week, I might make a mistake, I got homework, well, I feel bloated, I have gas, I got a hot date, my coach hates me, mom won't let me, I bruise easily. It's too dark. It's too cold. My blister hurts. This is dangerous. <sighs> Sorry, I don't have a bike. I didn't get enough sleep. My tummy hurts. It's not in my jeans. I don't want to look all tired out. I need a better coach. I don't like getting tackled. I have a stomach ache. I'm not the athletic type. I want to get sweaty. I have better things to do. I don't want to slow you down. I have to do this as soon as I get a promotion. I think I'll sit this one out. And my feet hurt. What excuses do we use? I got a headache. It's raining. I can't right now. It's too hot, too cold. I might make a mistake. My favorite show's on. It's too dangerous. I don't want to get tired out. I did my time. Do I have to? Insert your personal favorite. We all have them. Life would be easier for Walt Stack. He's the 80-year-old gentleman we saw in that first video. What excuses could he have used? And excuses would make life easier for Matt Scott, the paraplegic we just saw. But for them, for those two men, excuses just didn't cut it. Friends, every one of us, me, 
and you. We're being called to serve Jesus. And each one of us has a role to play. What if Mary hadn't embraced her role? What if she said, please, no, God, I don't want to bear your son. I'm just a young teenage girl. Or what if she hadn't given Jesus that little push to get his ministry started? What if she said to the servants, do whatever seems right to you. You can listen to him or not. What if the blind man hadn't ventured forth and found the pool of Shalom and washed his eyes? Because both people just did it. Their lives were changed forever. Mary got to play a crucial role in the birth of our Savior. How blessed was she for that? A man who was blind from birth at least 20 years, if not longer, got to see what he had been missing all his life. Can you imagine how blessed he must have felt? Friends, here's the big question. What blessings might we experience if we answer Jesus' call? What might we experience if we just do it? Brothers and sisters, answering Jesus' call on your life, it doesn't require fancy, expensive running shoes or special athletic wear. But what it does require is a willing heart, a heart that understands that what Jesus did when he went to the cross for you and me, a heart that sees the gift of Easter morning and the empty tomb and the promise of life everlasting. What is Jesus calling you to do? Whatever it is, just do it. Just do it. Amen. I invite you to stand and join together in uh, singing of the last hymn, number 668 in the Brown Hymnal.